Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Answering the Call, Conversations with Practitioners. I'm Josh. I'm Ryan. And today we have the absolute honor and privilege of having on Mr. Mike Youngson on the podcast. Mike, welcome in. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. So before we get into the questions here, could you give the audience a little background um, just about you? Certainly. Class of 1987, which I realize is a, is a couple of years ago, um, I wanted to fly jets. So I figured um, that would be something awesome to do with the Corps of Cadets at a and I did get to fly in the Air Force. I was a backseater, essentially a navigator. Um, got to do some staff jobs, the operations personnel, and then... As a navigator, I did. I had heard about this thing called GPS, and then they actually put it in my jet, and so I lost my job. So I couldn't get back to flying, and so I did international affairs in the Pentagon. Um, worked with the Brits and um, had loads of cool trips. Entered out of Shea School with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Worked in Dublin, Ireland for a little bit. Worked at their headquarters. We all get out of the military at some point. Became a civilian with the Defense Intelligence Agency. Did policy strategy. He got to work on Capitol Hill and then started doing um, some recruiting, professional development, uh, interviewing. Uh, our youngest decided to go to Texas A&M. So we would go back for parents weekends and things like that. And a gentleman named Mike Cochran and I were talking a little bit and he said, I've got some amazing students here. And uh, he is absolutely right. And so I've had the great opportunity to talk to students, whether they're at the Bush School and uh Working wise, I'm now back in operation. What I really enjoy, so I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much. Yeah, of course. Um, so just to go back uh, to the beginning, what kind of drove you, besides your interest in being a pilot, to join the United States Air Force? Was there an underlying theme there, like service among your family? Well, my dad was in the Air Force. Uh, he wanted to fly as well. He was medically disqualified uh, just a few weeks before flying. And so um, growing up on our force bases around the world, it was like, I want to do that. Um, my grandfather um, had emigrated from Scotland. He joined the British Army during World War I. And so, um, you know, is there a, a family history? My brother just retired from the Air Force. So we kind of, I guess, got a, um, I just wanted to fly. And then... That's why going to AM, if you're going to be in ROTC, you might as well be at Texas AM in the Corps of Cadets. And then when they said, oh, we have so many applicants that, uh, well, we're going to limit it to 2020 eyesight. And I was, I guess, 2025. And they said, we well, could be a backseat. So it's like, good, I want to fly. And so you go to flight school, you sit in uh, all kinds of airplanes. And I was on a hot ramp out in California with. Uh, a parachute on my back, helmet on my head, sucking on an oxygen mask. And it's like, you know, it looks cool in the movies, but I think I want a big airplane. And so I had my first choice of airplanes uh, in, out of, uh, on assignment night, went up to Northern New York, just south of Montreal, Canada. So that was, that was something I was really interested in. Um, I've, unfortunately, all the airplanes that I've flown were built before I was born if you can imagine, and they're still flying those airplanes. Um, so the technology was different, but I, I enjoyed the daylight. Well, so jumping right into it, what was one of the toughest adjustments you went through during your time in either the United States Air Force or DIA? So in operations, when you're flying, when you're out there and your only job is to fly missions. When I started out, I was in strategic air command. A third of my life was sitting alert. We had a building at the end of the runway. 
we had airplanes that were ready, have crews run out, jump in them, start up the engines and launch off and refuel the bombers and uh, drop nuclear weapons on the Soviet Union. That was our complete. Um, you'd have a full week and then two weeks off. In your... And then we had this minor thing called Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And we headed off to do that. And we left enough people to continue that mission. And we were doing things that were in our primary mission, but it was operational. It wasn't just sitting there waiting to do something. And we were refueling, refueling fighters. We were refueling all kinds of airplanes and doing things and having Scud missiles launched at our base, just hoping. Strategic Air Command went away. Um, the peace dividend, whatever. We changed our role to be more expeditionary. Um, I had five total trips to Saudi Arabia. So it changed from sitting on alert to actually going, deploying, doing different. And so it I wasn't sure what I was going to be doing. I knew I was going to be on an alert mission when I first got into that airplane. And then it changed. And then doing staff jobs, I I enjoyed operations, but I had a chance to do personnel um, where I was the resource man for pilots and navigators who were in my airplane. So that's 1991 that I was trying to keep track of. And then I started sending people. Um, and so it was an opportunity to do something beyond just operations. And so I had that operations background, but I was able to put that to use in, say, staff jobs. Um, and so there's some people that that do the same job and absolutely love it. And I had the chance to go and kind of broaden my horizons, kind of stretch and and learn some things. It was it was different. I can't say that the fifth trip to Saudi Arabia was was fun. It was for a whole year. Um, I was the only non-fighter pilot of the bunch, and I had to learn about all these things that it was Navy and Air Force fighter pilot. We're dropping bombs on your battle plan. So what's your call sign? It's like, Mike. Because um, when you're in that community, everybody's got a call sign. Everybody. So, um, and they tried to stick call signs. Up. Didn't quite. Um, perhaps that answer. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, so you talk about all these different roles that you filled from staff to ops, even within the United States Air Force and the DIA. What experience would you say was most fulfilling to you or the one that you enjoyed the most? I think the fulfilling part was was that I actually volunteered to go. Um, typically, it was filled by individuals who were coming up on retirement. Sent, They were offered the opportunity and they couldn't refuse. They were stuck. And so I volunteered, I kind of went ahead of the other people who were going and it was an opportunity for me to do something different. Like I said, hanging out with a bunch of fighter pilots, I was working in J3 operations. Um, we were doing Operation Southern Watch. There's a group up in Turkey doing Northern Watch in your history book. And when there was this discussion about, okay, so when things kick off and when we have the next version of Desert, what are we going to do? How are we going to integrate both North and South? And then we'll put them on one air battle plan. And so my boss is like, well, we better go up there and figure out just how this. And they had green grass and they could drink beer. And it's like, um, so, but I, it was, it was challenging. Um, my boss was the Thunderbird pilot and he had the Breitling massive Thunderbird watch to prove it. Um, it was, I had guys who had distinguished flying crosses and in the flying combat world, that is a big, and these are the guys that were walking around the badasses. They're like, and somehow you found out about it. It's like, 
That is awesome. There was an aircraft carrier out in the Gulf and we got to go spend the day out on the aircraft carrier. And it's hot and humid and it's noisy, small. And we went out there and we were only there for just a few hours instead of the most of the day. And it was like, you know, this is just an, all right. I like being in an airplane where I know where. And so that was a neat, neat experience. Awesome. So obviously the military and the DIA are pretty closely connected, but there's still going to be some differences. Um, the skills you developed during your time in the military, how did those translate over to when you transitioned to DIA? Um, what ways did you need to adapt to the change environment? So, so when I was coming up in the Air Force, we had, so there's the intelligence component and the joint community, J, J1 is personnel, J2 is intelligence, J3 is operating. So the J2 guys, the intel folks, it's like, okay, we get our intel briefing, but I, I did not really know what this thing called the defense intelligence was because I, they didn't have any interaction. You know, I didn't have, I didn't do anything with those. And so, but when I was doing international affairs, um, I would go out to the embassies and I would talk to our attache and learn that they were part of the defense intelligence agency and the Navy guys who were there, the army guys were there, the Marines who were there, the enlisted folks were all part of the defense intelligence. And it was after I had like nine trips and working with, and the attaches there were like, you need, um, and so I went to attache school and got into, and, and it was, it was something that, so it was established in 1961, mostly military at the time. There's say 16 or so thousand, 70% of the DIA workforce is civilian. Some of them have some prior military, 22 years. Um, and so there's a lot of the civilians who were there, but they understand. And so when I come as a military guy, I had my job to do as a man. I was relying on, um, and she had everything wired, everything I needed. I would just have to make this one call or she's like, I got it. I am here for you. This is what I do and I can take care of it. And I go off and, um, and so I think, I think the understanding of the mission is important. And I came from an operations background and I got in. And so when you're in an embassy situation and you're talking, or there's individuals from other countries who are there and you're kind of understanding, you know, what's their priority. Um, and so I was glad that I was in that international environment in the Pentagon as opposed to coming straight from, from operations, straight from, from, from flying. Because I think that would have taken me a lot more to to get up to speed on on what's going on in that. Um, I came. I was able to go back to the headquarters and work things and and work with our desk officer. The executive officer retired, so I became the XO. Um, and it was the care and feeding of all these individuals in 28 defense attaché off um, and everything that they needed. And it was how do I get the civilians to understand what our person. And it was from that ops background. It was kind of a, okay, this is bureaucracy. That's fine. But let's just kind of the good old fashioned get her done. So I'm glad you talk about civilians in the DIA because in class a lot, we talk about the civilian role within the DOD. And um, what do you, th or what do you think the value of having civilians in the defense sector is? So, I mean, some agencies are going to have certainly the military component. Um, in the intelligence community, when you have, say, the NRO, my brother was in the NRO. He was doing space stuff uh, and had to convert to space force. And the NSA is going to big focus. Um, and so you have these trained military specialists from all the different services, including Coast Guard. We had some Coast Guard. Ads. 
Um, and so you have these, these specialists who come in and from whatever their background is, whatever their unit was, they're in your agency, say for give or take. And then the benefit of the civilians is that you've got this continuity. And there have been times, and I've been in that category of people who are like, okay, I'm here, I'm here for three years and I'm gonna make a difference. I am gonna turn everything upside down and I'm gonna say, see, this is the right way to do it. And the civilians will go, hey, well, you know, a few years ago, one of your predecessors tried that same thing and, um, you know, it kind of fell on its, unless we're going to do something different. So they, that continuity kind of saves individuals from these great ideas that um, you give the perspective, you give the longevity, you can say, this is what, now we are open, we are open for good ideas. Um, but having seen this in the past, and I think that's a benefit of, of the civilian workforce. Um, and where I'm at right now, we have civilian and, and military human intelligence collectors and, and, and they're side by side. And so um, when you're in another country, you're only going to put on the uniform, um, the big fancy kind of the national, the Marine Corps ball things. And so you're in, you're in business. Um, and so everybody kind of looks a and so you don't really have that, well, you know, you're only a civilian or you're only, it's like, no, this is what you bring. You're part of the, um, we can always improve on that a little bit. Um, so one of the things that our agents is when the civilians come in, understanding that most of the civilians have zero prior military. And so we have a military familiarization course. Before COVID, we would send people, say, down to Norfolk, Virginia. They'd go out on an aircraft carrier. It's like, hey, here's a ship. Oh, here's a tank. Here's a whatever, whatever. There's a petting zoo, we call it, down at uh, over at Nellis Air Force Base in Las Vegas. So all this equipment that has been acquired, whether on the battlefield or people have defected with it or bought it on the open market. And so there's all this stuff. And you're not just reading about it or looking at it. You're actually able to crawl around and figure that. Um, we have military capabilities specialty. And we have civilians who come in and they are very knowledgeable. So we do loads of training. We're in the DOD. We do loads of We bring people in. The second phase of what we do is training education, get people certified, get them up. Awesome. That's great to hear. So over your time in DIA, you've served in a variety of different roles. Um, you've extensive experience across the globe. But what part has been the most rewarding component of your job? Is there a particular position you enjoyed the most? Um, so one opportunity I did have as a civilian in DIA is um, every year we send three people through the Brookings Legislative Fellowship Program to go work on Capitol Hill. It's a January to December program. And I guess when you think about it, DC is a company town. And there are so many people who are, you hear on the news and you hear whatever, and you see Capitol Hill and all that kind of, but you don't quite understand it unless you kind of get that inside perspective. And so through this program, we had about a week and a half of training, and there were 33 of us all together, three from my agency. There were people from OSD, from CIA, from NSA, from NRO, from Treasury, Forestry, Energy, Commerce, uh, and a couple of civilians. And we were able to be a part of the team. I wasn't there as the DOD, the DIA guy. I was there with years of experience to kind of help out and see how things work. I worked for Senator Manchin from West Virginia. He was on the Senate Armed Services Committee. So we would prep the boss for hearings, got to prepare questions for my senator to give to my boss back in DIA, 
along with the director of national intelligence. Um, we didn't have any gotcha questions, um, but that was kind of interesting. And to be in, to be a backbencher and and see what's going on. And then the senator leans back and he's like, hey, buddy, which question should I ask? And it's like, well, senator, I think you should ask. And we had this project called the Congressional Veterans Jobs Caucus. And so Senator Manchin and his counterpart in the Senate, and then there were two leaders on the House, and we had maybe 120 total members of Congress, and we're waving the flag of veterans and jobs, and we were having these events. We had a Medal of Honor win and talk about when he was in Afghanistan and the Taliban was carrying off one of his buddies and he went over, he's like, I'm not going to let that happen. And he saves his buddy. And he's like, you know, we need to do more for veterans and jobs. So Senator Manchin is like, I've got, I've got veterans on my team. Mike, where are you? And he's like, you know, over here, sir. And, um, and that was neat. We had this at that same event, there was a group that came in and they were obviously a VIP and it was the vice president for federal relations. And she's like, where do you really work? And are you hiring? I have no idea. So she's like, how can we get more Aggies in the in the intelligence community? And I'm like, I don't know, uh, but I'll find out. So that's that's how I got kind of introduced to other Bushies and the career service and on and on. And, and I and it was neat. It was interesting. Uh, I got to learn how to give tours of the Capitol building. We had a congressman who had he was from Michigan. And he would start talking about, well, you know, back when I was a member and I had people on my staff, he was the guy that said, you know, everybody's got to give a tour of the Capitol. And so I learned how to give a tour of the Capitol, the blood stains on the marble steps, you know, the, the bathtub where the vice president used to take baths way back when before air conditioning, got a cold and died of pneumonia, you know, the other things. Um, and so it was, it was neat, neat. And the congressman, Bob Carr, um, he was there when a guy named Charlie, congressman from Texas, the movie Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, colorful character, and he would talk about when he and Charlie were off drinking, having a good time. So those stories were kind of cool. So every time we send somebody to do a different activity, whether it's work on the Hill or send them off to get a map, we have what's a follow-on utilization. And so my utilization was I was congressional. And so I was part of the team whenever we would need, need to take our subject matter experts over to the Hill to go talk to the different committees or talk to members. Um, and so we'd know where to get over to the Hill. We know how to walk through the buildings, which elevator to take, give them on a quick little tour and and uh, and things like that. Talk about Statuary Hall. Um, it, was, it was neat to say I've done it. And that was 2014. Um, Congress is an interesting place. And I think for everybody, if they get that opportunity, PPIP is an awesome program. I'll plug the daylight. Um, and they send people to work in, in capital. And so to learn what's going on and taking care of the constituents, we would get calls all the time and you could tell who was being prodded by some special would call with, well, thank you very much. But there are times where somebody really needed actual no kidding help and the center would be able to um, you know, some people catch Potomac fever and they work full time there. Um, I enjoyed it and it was, I think, a, a neat opportunity. All right. So kind of switching gears here a little bit. Um, it'd be a shame if we didn't talk about geopolitics while we were on here. Um, so we begin to see a lot of rising powers and powers that have been in the sphere um, starting to play more of a larger role within um, within global competition. 
how do you see the objectives and the priorities of the United States intelligence community evolving in the short term and then also in the long term? So when we talk about global competition, that's that is we've got we've got organizations or sub offices that that's their big focus. And when you talk about rising powers, um, you know, so when I was a member of Strategic Air Command and we had the single interop single integrated operation for global thermonuclear war against um, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Berlin Wall fell, then the Russians were Russia, Russian Federation, and they became our and the Chinese, um, they've gotten more powerful. North Korea, I mean Iran, um, that's been a mess. And and some different countries. And so I think they're persistent. Um, I think there there are a lot of bad actors out there. I mean, what I like about the Defense Intelligence Agency is that our role is to figure out the military capability in the world. Maybe if we're going to go in a fight and who's going to be with us. And if if you have partner nations who have different capability, a good sea capability, good human, things like that, or your adversaries, what do they really, no kidding. And I think it's that understanding of what's going on. And you might have these news reports like the North Koreans are going to cross the border into South Korea. And then, well, actually, according to satellites, according to indications and warnings or whatever, they don't have any supplies. They don't have any extra fuel trucks. They don't have any extra food. They're not going to get very far. They might you know, have a skirmish. And so you're, you're going to see, you're going to see that we need a better understanding. Something that has always been years, think back to you know, the world war you had and so on. And, and there's a lot that has been said about, say, the special relationship. And now this, uh, what has evolved from that is the five eyes. Um, and so we've got this close cooperation with the Commonwealth, Australia, New Zealand. Um, and, but that doesn't mean we don't have great relationships with other countries. Think Japan, think Germany, think Denmark, Turkey, um, and maybe the Philippines again. Uh, it, you know, it kind of goes up and down. And so I think I think what what's helpful to know is that the partnerships that exist, um, we can't go it alone. We don't have the unlimited funds, the unlimited people, the unlimited whatever to do that on our. Um, everybody had kind of thought that Russia was this super undefeatable behemoth, and they've been bogged down in Ukraine. Um, now they're using prisoner cons conscript um, to do things. And so I think I think there's always, the world is not a safe, it would be nice to think that. Um, you can go on vacations around the world, but you got to keep your eyes open. Bad, bad things happen, you know, look in many parts of the world. Um, and there are bad actors out there and there are people pushing buttons. And so with that understanding, we need to be cautious. We need to be prepared. Um, the rising powers, um, Russia is always going to be there, fading. Perhaps I'm not that I'm not that guy to prog prognosticate. China, um, they have this fixation on on Taiwan, um, South China Sea. Um, the Philippines is a country that is now um, realizing that hey, maybe China is not our buddy. Um, and some other countries around. Uh, you look at Colombia, Venezuela border issue and other things, and so. I think, you know, I'm not sure, you know, maybe it's for 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 what you're studying on the rising powers and who's been a persistent power and who's coming up now and how and now they're being enabled by some other bad. The Iranians are going to be stirring up trouble. 
okay, what's in their best interest? Uh, was it a good thing if Israel and Saudi Arabia were going to get maybe recognize one another and become more friendly? And will shockingly, Iran didn't like that idea. So um, I'm not I'm not sure that I would say the rising powers is there. You've got the persistent guys who who's really at the but. That's a perspective. Everybody's got one, and, and I'm not selling books about it. That's fair. Um, changing gears one more time, we're going to move on more the more personal side of you. Um, do you have a personal motto you live by? Uh, if you do, has it changed over time? Does it relate at all to your public service career? So a phrase that I've been using um, more and more, like talking to some of your Bush School counterparts and other students. Um, so there was this hockey player. Uh, Wayne Gretzky, who was just absolute. And he is quoted as saying, you miss every shot you don't. And so when you kind of step back a little bit, you, um, so in the applying for jobs when I'm having, or you know what you're looking at, um, well, woulda, coulda, shoulda. So, all right, now do you have your heart set on, on just door number one? Or is there another thing? Speaking as somebody who thought I should, the only way to get a pilot slot was to be an air. And then I realized that the Air Force was going to give pilot slots to guys with good grades. I switched my major to something that I felt I could do better in. That was history. Um, although when you change your major right before school starts, all the entry-level freshman classes are all taken. Took some classes that I learned how to, had to learn how to study. Um, and so when you think about um, the different the different options that are there. Are you are you solely focused on one thing? Um, you know, to say that's you know my perspective in public service. Um, I would say that's that's a good approach to take, because so quick story. Lots of Aggies up here. I was talking to a, a gentleman, and we're having a beer, and we're sitting talking about Aggie football and so on, and and he was like, so tell me more about where you work and some options. And he's like, because I've been in one office doing one thing in one location. And my boss is not has told me I can't do anything other than I'm sitting in that. Desk. It's like, oh, well, so in, in my agency, we have the opportunity for people to change office, change locations. And then we have 10 different career fields. And we have the opportunity working with the career development officer to maybe change to a different career field. And he's like, come on, I'm a few years from I wish I had more. And so I've come in, I started out as a human turn. And then I got to do policy and strategy, which is a different career field. And then I got to do congressional kind of stuff. And then I got to do some career development, things like that. And it's 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 opportunities to do a, a few different. And you could try that. And I think in an environment where you have those options, and I do have the option, my wife is like, oh, let's go overseas. This will be awesome. This will be great. And like, okay, well, let's think this through. Um, I don't think we're moving, but you never know. She may, you know, the boss may have an idea in mind. So, um, but it's an option. And I think, you know, you take those options or I'm back in operator multiple years of doing, and I'm working with military folks and civilians. And we found out, I talked to three guys today and they're going to do training in gym, trying to figure out, okay, what can we do to help you? One guy's got to do language training. One guy's got to do some other stuff and this and that service. Um, and then we're getting, get him out to an embassy and all everything involved. And it's like, this is cool. It's like, what can we do to help you? My role is I'm the, I'm the support. Side. And I can say, you know, when I was there in an embassy, it was Austin, Ireland. I'm going to Timbuktu. Well, good for you. Maybe afterwards you can go to Ireland. Um, so, but, but I think, I think it's, you know, I, I do go back to, 
to the miss you miss every shot you know um when you think about like like um bad health and if you're going to wait until whatever age when you've saved up money to do this big trip how many trips have you been on where you've seen people who can barely walk they're stuck in wheelchairs and so i would say you got this awesome thing take it you know my wife said we should get tickets to the lsu football game well turns out that was the seven overtime win (laughs) Uh, i wish i took my jacket that and then she's like we should go to the Alabama. Like, we're going to get... And she said, well, it's the same weekend. We can go to Austin City Limits Music Festival. And there's going to be John Party there. And this is straight. So we got to see George Strait close. And then the next day, we go to College Station. And we watch the Aggies beat Alabama. And then we go up to Dallas. And my daughter's living up there. And we got to hang out with her at the Texas. Could I thought about it or just... So um, just... I'm not going to be Mr. So, um, but I, but I think there's value. What do you have to lose? Give it a shot. And I can talk on the I'm destined to be career field A, but there's other opportunities too. And I've talked, they've tried to A and one individual in particular is doing a bang up job in two. And it's like, you know, maybe this is where you were meant to. I kind of, so kind of along that same vein, um, what's something that you wish you knew before joining the defense intelligence agency and just the IC in large that you think that um, some students that listen to this podcast should know and could possibly relate to their own journey um, going into the IC. So when I came into DIA and the intelligence community, I kind of back because I only knew about it because I was hanging out with the attaches in London of all, and they're like, man, this is great. We get to go to this. We get to do that. And we get to like, right. Lots of reports about observe and report and things like things like that. And so um, my perspective was solely on the human intelligence, how to, you know, we collect information. Something happens afterwards and then there's all this other stuff. But I really didn't have a full appreciation of the entire agent. And so I wanted to, we all get out of the military at some point. And I applied for a job as a civilian doing operation. And they ended up hiring somebody who was like five more more capable than me. And I'm like, is awesome. And so there was another job and I came in and it was doing policy and strategy. And the benefit of that is that I got to work with different parts of the agency all over. And so, like I mentioned earlier, we have 10 different career fields. We have all kinds of different organizations. I mean, we have one architect. Okay. We have a lot of engineers. We have a lot of, we have a lot of analysts. We have a logistician on and on. And I didn't really fully appreciate how big and diverse and how expansive the agency was until I became a civilian. Because as a military guy, if one of my folks needed something in an embassy, I was down the hall finding it as like, I need this, my person needs this done, but I don't, I'd walk past stuff and it's like, I don't know what that is. Um, And so that kind of a, my initial focus as a military guy was just on human. It's like, instead of a Swiss army knife, I got a one big um, crocodile Dundee, big old knife. And that's all I knew. And it did everything for me. But yet there's more things, there's more capabilities to, to kind of do things. And I did not gain the full appreciation and understanding of what my folks did in collecting that information. And then all that stuff goes over to so many different kinds of analysts trying to figure out all these things, these things, human intelligence reports or satellite photos or sensors, different kinds. 
and then the security teams and the facilities teams and the communicators and, and so on. Um, I think that when you look at, say, something like Defense Intelligence Agency or, or another member of the IC, I've talked to some students who are like, I don't know if I'm qualified to be in the Defense Intelligence Agency. So, okay, maybe you saw a movie. Um, and by the way, DIA doesn't have many movies except for, I think, Spies Like Us. Um, but uh, there was a TV show called The Brave. Uh, it lasted um, but that's fine. We don't, we aren't the agency that did the Washington. Um, but I think when, when individuals look at what we are looking, um, here, a story a few years back. So there was a general, three-star general, who was the director of the Samuel. When he was a colonel in the army, he was at the chief of station, which means he was running all CIA operations. And so he was being interviewed and he's like, you know, everybody thinks they want it. And that's great. And we need some James Bonds. But what I really need is a lot more Sherlock Holmes. The people who can look at something and go, aha, this is what this means, this means, and this means. And so, okay, all right. But then when you think about the movie themes, every time James Bond was going to go do something cosmic, Money Penny was right there to make sure that he was able to do those things. And then Q, the quartermaster, was going to give him all those little fancy doodads and things like that. And so when individuals are considering something like the Defense Intelligence Agency, it's not only limited to the James Bond or the Sherlock Holmes. And you don't have to understand everything that Q, the quartermaster, but there's still six or seven other different career fields. And we need a lot of individuals with, the, you know, different perspective, skills, talent, and loads of time. And so when I'm talking to somebody, it's like, well, I did this. And it's like, well, tell me more. What did you really do? What did you get from that? And sometimes those experiences um, are great because they're, they demonstrate their leadership, their communication, their accountability. If I have two, two individuals who are applying, one guy's got a 3.9 GPA and no activities. And the other person activities out the wazoo, they're in the ready room, they're in SCONA. They're a volunteer at this. They had a summer job at Chick-fil-A. They do whatever, big brothers, big sisters, and they're maintaining a 2.9 GPA, those 2.9 GPA fighters. My perspective is you're doing all these different things and you're able to maintain a 2.9 GPA. Good on you. That's the guy that I want to talk to. Because when we have a problem that comes up, we need people who understand teamwork, who understand accountability, not, not to say, where's the manual on it? We haven't written the manual on this thing because we don't know. You, 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 you come in, you work on these things. Now we do these projects and hopefully in an hour, in a day or in a week, we're going to know more, you know, put those Sherlock Holmes brains to work. So I think I I like the the Defense Intelligence Agency because of the multiple. And yes, I'm back in awesome of crown jewel to me of the kind of body. As you should be, sir. So we'll move towards wrapping it up here. Any final advice or thoughts for Bush School students? Join the Wayne Gretzky Club. Um Apply, apply, apply. Look at all those out that are out there. Um, there are many amazing, um, I will make a plug for Mike Cochran and Matt Upton in speakers from who talk about their employment opportunities. And then when you do the interviews, there's going to be this part at the end where they're going to say, do you have any questions? Take advantage of that. It is your opportunity to say, okay, well, tell me about What's going on in your organization? Is your your organization the kind of place where you can ask questions, where you can, you know, have you been in a situation where you've had questionable activities? What has come up? Um, because not every organization is the same. 
you want to know, you know, what's, please don't ask what's a typical. I mean, my boss was asking me just today, hey, so what's on your schedule today? I'm like, aspirationally, I don't know. Cause I got fires coming in all over the place, but it, you know, what's so a typical day can, but more about what's the call, what's the strategy, how does your organization do in taking care of, um, mission first people always, okay, those are, those are great. How does, how do you really deliver? Um, we have a survey every year on how things are going and we try to measure, we have the perspective of some, nobody really here. Um, but I think it's, it's useful when you ask somebody, how, how's it going? What's the environment? Is it, is it the environment where you like coming into work? I've been in an office where the whole entire team, you know, turns around and everybody leaves and it's like, and then I've got a place right now where I just love the daylights of where I'm working. And so you can get lucky. I think you can get lucky. And so don't discount the things that you might not know much of. Much of what we do, as I'm telling people, it's like, you're going to learn more when you get in. Do the internship program. There, there's the grad, We have a graduated intern opportunity, I guess, in a way. So for your first year, if you submit an application in the spring, because the security clearance process takes so many, and you're going to graduate in May of 2025, you could start out, you graduate in May, walk across the walk across the state um, and then you show up as an intern and you work in an office, work some things, you meet people all over and at the end of the summer, you roll into a full-time. DIA had 12 Aggie interns in the summer. Two returned to school. One is back at A&M, the other is in law. Um, one of the guys decided to go with the other crowd and that left nine Aggies who had all been graduated interns who are now in full-time position. And they had that opportunity to see what it's like in this office, this office, this career field, shift those. The uh, the gentleman who was the one worked with him for a couple years. He was at the Mays School, and he's like, you know, I, I enjoyed the daylights out of this, and it was really neat, really cool, except what they do at this other agency. They go into more depth and detail, and they're greater opportunities. And I'm like, and he's like, you know, is that okay? And it's like, yes. I'd rather you learn that now. So speaking as a dad, my daughter was classified international studies. She was trying to figure out, what do I do? What do I do? And she did this really cool internship with the Project 20. She was the only non-native Chinese. Um, and she had this cool internship. And then she's like, well, what what should I do? And it's like, well, here's this opportunity. And she took a look at it. And she's like, so if I was to do... And so she came in, she started working in an office, and then she had a chance to shift, shift to another office, working related stuff. She's now working as a contractor. Um, but as a dad, I would be much happier for somebody to to kind of test the waters. An internship tests uh, our application process takes so long. Mike Cochran and I have had long conversations about this. Dean Welsh and I have had long conversations about this, and just yet in a couple more. But um, don't be afraid to take those and don't discount something because you're, and maybe you'll find out. And if you find out and you like it, awesome. If you don't like it, that's fine. By the way, that Mays student who's with the other guys, um, he's like, you know, I've got a lot of friends who I meet, I think should come over here and join your team. And it's like, bring them on. Happy to. So don't want to run over too much. I appreciate this opportunity. This was this was pretty neat. I am I'm a big fan of a few things, the Bush School, uh, PPIP, uh, Aggies in general. And uh, we have a lot of neat opportunities. We're looking for for all kinds. Uh, this isn't a one-size-fits-all thing because um, it's, put it this way, if you had 
uh, a group of people and they were all big fans of baseball. Well, there's, I guess there's strategy, not a baseball guy, but maybe there's a strategy on how you do baseball and everything is done a certain way. And then you bring in somebody who's a basketball and they're like, but did you think about it from this other person? And I had that, I was using that analogy. Uh, I was at the A&M Law School um, program up there and I was, I was saying it. And there's this one student at the law school who's like, yeah, I played football at Arkansas. I'm like, all right, well, anyhow, so the football <laughs> strategy and, and that kind of stuff. And, and he kind of nodded along and, and so on. And so, so yes, we do need people um, with a variety of skills. And so don't think that, you know, because I'm not X, Y, and, and speak five languages, not qualified. English is still my best. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking time out of your, I'm sure, busy schedule to come talk to us today. And thank you for being a friend of not only the Bush School, but just Texas A&M in general. Um, so would you mind telling the folks that listen to this uh, any way that they can get in, into contact with you um, if they want to learn more about the DIA, the IC um, in general? So LinkedIn is is a good resource. Um, I was encouraged to join LinkedIn when I was on the Hill because I, the Capitol Hill folks uh, did things. Um, the IQ Network on LinkedIn is is something there. I'll, I may just... I'll occasionally post stuff to the Aggie network instead of just however many connections that are out. So that might be the easiest. Um, I can send stuff out. So the last name is not that town in Ohio. There's no T in Youngson. And for those who've been to the Yongsan Air Base in Korea, my Scottish grandfather would say, but yeah, try LinkedIn. And, um, you know, I'm sure Mike Cochran is, is just waiting to have somebody else come into his office. Can you help me, Mr. Cochran? Big fan of Mike Cochran. Go team. Just talk slowly. You know, he's a Marine. <laughs> like a bomber joke. All righty. Well, that about uh, wraps up our time. So once again, uh, thank you for joining us on the podcast and gig them. Thanks, y'all. Take care.